Welcome to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with Eva Medelec. If you're struggling to stay ahead of your daily life challenges, you will want to listen close as Eva and her guests will help you address the most important priorities first. Now, here's your host, Eva Medelec. Well, hello, everybody. Welcome, welcome. I'm Eva Medelec, and you have landed on What's Important Now making time for what matters most. You know, my intention for this show is to really help you get clear on what matters most. And that's why I bring on experts that will give you the tools to focus on your values and your priorities. So I want everybody to join me today in welcoming my guest, Kasum Krimmel. Now, Kasum is the founder and creator of Dissecting Whiteness, offering services to people and organizations invested in dismantling white supremacy and the healing of those impacted by racialized harm. Kasum is a facilitator of transformational change and curates space for people to express their truth, respect others' truth, and move towards the courageous work of reconciliation and repair. So welcome, Kasum. Thanks for joining us. Hey, Eva, thank you so much for inviting me. It's a real pleasure and honor to be here. I'm so excited for our conversation today. And I usually start out by asking my guests the same question before we get into the meat of what they do is, who are you? Who is Kasum? Thank you. Um, Such a big question. And it probably changes depending on the time (laughs) of life. Um, Currently, I very much identify with being the parent of a teenager. I think that's like the biggest identity right now that I hold. (laughs) I've worked with teenagers for over 20 years and there's a whole different experience being a parent. So one that I am learning and trying to remember all those conversations that I had with other parents of teenagers to acknowledge, like, yes, they disappear for a little while and they come back to you (laughs) mentally. You You know what I used to say when my girls were teenagers? You know, it's like the aliens come and take them away for, or they get, remember that movie invasion of the body snatchers. It really is. Somebody else comes in there, but hang in there, mama. They do come back. Yeah. (laughs) Yes. Yes. And I've witnessed it and experienced it so much from the external and now I'm in it in the real life experience. So those stories and the reminder, yeah, I think about it all the time. Um, My child has been taken and she will return. And in the meantime, I just have to keep her safe (laughs) as best that I can. And keep your sense of humor. I find is important too. (laughs) Yes. Yes. Awesome. Yeah. Um, So let's talk a little bit more about, you know, who you are in the world now and what problems you solve. Mm-hmm. Because you've got a lot of experience, um, from what I hear, working with teenagers and now raising your own teenager. But in the work that you do in the world, tell us a little bit more about um, kind of what that work is and what it entails. I spoke a little bit about it in your bio, but I want, I want to hear from you because I may have missed some things, of course. Yeah, I- I think I come at it from a couple of different angles and just to share. So I have my license in clinical social work. I do not practice clinical social work. I, I got the license and did social work for many years in a high school and then left and started working as a program, working on a, a program, conflict mediation, 
which then got me trained in restorative justice, which I just fell in love with. I really love supporting people through hard issues, hard times, situations that feel um, almost impossible to get through. And so often it can be really supportive to have an outside person come in that doesn't have the same level of emotionality in it. So I bring that into my work. I also, so as a trained therapist and a person who can feel, I'm an intuitive person. I'm very sensitive. I'm very energetically connected to people. I see people through what I call a somatic lens. I've been trained and worked with the organization Generative Somatics for many years. And somatically in that work, we look at the body and the shape and the, the body holds history. It holds information. It holds wisdom as well as it holds harm, as well as it holds trauma that has been both transformed and shifted as well as not transformed and shifted. And so when I do work with people, whether I'm doing work in a group, um, facilitating a workshop, facilitating a healing session, or facilitating a conflict, a mediation, every sort of practices circle, I'm noticing the body, I'm noticing the energy that people are holding, um, what isn't being said, the places in between the words, the information of a story that happens in relationship when people are with each other, the there's so much complexity that happens when we bring people together. And so much of our wounding shows up in those hard situations. So much of our wounding that either is passed down generationally to us um, or that we've experienced in this particular lifetime. And so in my other work, um, restorative justice work, which is indigenous practice, indigenous um, folks have shared across the world practices where we don't push people out, where we really engage the community. And anytime there's harm or conflict, the society that we live in likes to push people away and disconnect. We're going to put you away. We're going to suspend you. We're going to expel you. We're going to imprison you. We're going to basically say you've caused harm and you're no longer welcome to be a part of the community. And restorative practices are about welcoming people back in and saying, we all make mistakes. We are humans. We have layers of experience and that the community actually is here to support both understanding what happened, but also being responsible to help support a practice of accountability, which is, I mean, humans, but Americans especially, we don't have a lot of experience. Our, our systems don't really understand what accountability is. Our systems really look at accountability as punishment. And so for me, the work is to support people in, in having heavy, hard conversation. I'm very comfortable in hard conversation, things that people usually want to jump out of and, and run. Uh, it, it's the complexity of human nature that, in, that intrigues me and um, creates a lot of curiosity in me. And then as a white-bodied person for many, many years, I, being in relationship to... Um, as Resma Menachem will talk about um, bodies of culture. Um, other people might say BIPOC people, people of color, but being in relationship and communities with folks, listening to stories and hearing and understanding, my work is really to be doing the work with my people. Um, racism began in our folks and my people. We When you say your people, are you talking white body people? Yes, white body people, yeah. So both of my family lineages come from European descendants. Um, and so I am a fully white body person, <laughs> experienced life. And, and I want to do, I want us to heal from the, um, the delusional. I, we can get into it more because I talk about it as a delusion. It's, 
these internalized beliefs of superiority that are a completely false idea that just got passed down and it lives in our bodies, um, behaviors and other things. I might be jumping ahead of myself and we might get into that, but, um, yeah, I really, let me, let me, um, ask you this question that came up when you were explaining restorative justice a bit, because what came to my mind when you were explaining that was what we are experiencing now in cancel culture. Mm -hmm. So correct me if I'm wrong, but what I heard when you were explaining it was that restorative justice is the opposite Mm -hmm. of cancel culture. Restorative justice takes in account that people are human, people make mistakes. How can we uh, in actuality restore health, if you will, restore uh, justice, restore uh, connection after a transgression or mistake? I mean, am I getting that right? It, It was just kind of my interpretation because you and I were talking earlier about um. You know, my Facebook group, The Intimacy of Race, and my book, The Intimacy of Race, and I created it to create a safe space for people to make mistakes, get information, learn from it, and not feel the shame, blame, and guilt that cancel culture was bringing on white-bodied people, you know, in 2020 after George Floyd's murder. It was just cancel culture was all over the place. Stuff we did 20, 30 years ago was being resurfaced and and people were being canceled for it. So talk to me a little bit more about that distinction. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I will just say that the terminology restorative justice, I don't believe was used in indigenous practice. I just want to name that Mm, because it's definitely been, there's pieces of it and many pieces have been co-opted and even appropriatively. Recently, I found out that the lineage that I was um, trained in, that the the person who brought it to the folks, that the indigenous folks of the Tlingit and Tagish people of Canada actually have said that they didn't they didn't say that it's okay for that person to use it. And it has blown up. And I will say that restorative practices are used in, in cultures and communities all over, in Ghana, in New Zealand, in, um, in a, across this country and a lot of indigenous practice. And this idea of we are a community and we can work things out together. We actually understand that we're all going to do harm there's always going to be harm. And if we don't have a place to practice transforming that harm and we get pushed out, it creates more and more barriers and it creates a a distancing and a shaming that does not help to repair. The process, I think, in restorative practice that I have been so motivated and moved by is the recognition that when there has been a harm or a conflict, say there's two people that one person caused harm to the other person, they actually almost always need each other in order to do the healing that they both have. There's a a need when somebody has been harmed. So oftentimes when we have been harmed, there's questions that we have that only the person that caused that harm can answer. Why did you do that? Why did you target me? What about me? Or what did, what, and also how do I know that you're doing the work to make it better? How do I know? Because my healing is, is intricately, connected to also knowing that that's not going to happen again to someone else. There's a part of that. And then the person who has caused harm, their ability to find um, their own 
their own humanity again, the recognition that they still could be a good person is their ability to actually make amends, their ability to not only apologize, but to understand the impact that that had. Because we don't actually, when we cause harm, oftentimes we do it without even knowing it. And then we don't actually know how did that impact people? How did that cause um, a rippling out of effect? And so when we've caused harm and when we hear from people who we've caused harm to, the impact, it shifts something in us. And then the last piece is, and then how am I going to be held accountable? What is there something? Is there something I need to do? And sometimes that can be monetary. Sometimes it can be physical. Sometimes it's, and that what can be done really has to come from the person in the community that was harmed. And, and to make things as right as possible is on the person who's caused the harm or on the people who have caused the harm. And that creates the, in our own bodies, a sense of, oh, I still belong. And we all have a yearning to belong. And so when we have a culture that pushes it out, it, it, the incision on our, on our internal spaces of not belonging. Oh, we don't belong. We're human beings. And our biggest yearning is to belong to people, to connection. And so that, that culture that we live in is nothing different than the police system, the, you know, the, these systems that we just take people away and say, we're not going to let you learn from your mistake. You're just going to sit over here and have to pay for it. So, yeah, yeah, yeah. There, there's no. Um, well, like you said, use the word restoration back to health after an injury has mm-hmm. been uh, caused or harm has been caused. So, who is this restorative justice work for? Like, who can, who should contact you for this type of work? Who are you for? And then, you know, on the tail end of that, who are you not for? Mm-hmm. What does that look like? <laughs> well, I think it's interesting because I'm bringing in two different kind of aspects of my work. There's restorative justice work, and then there's dissecting whiteness work. And I think the restorative justice work, the the, the people that I work with are people who are struggling. They're, I can I get brought in to help with actual conflicts that are going on. So I've been brought into organizations where there's internal conflict with some of the staff, um, where there's some organizational conflict. I also facilitate towards a lot of schools and school districts to help them integrate restorative practices in their schools so that they can really cut down um, this sort of um, school to prison pipeline that a lot of schools are still struggling to break. And I think my dissecting whiteness work is, is for white body people who really want to unlearn the behaviors and layers of internalized um, racism that we live in uh, and to help it, particularly if you're working in organizations and schools and places where you're engaging with people of color, engaging in relationships that maybe you, they're not seeing how that is having it can have a negative impact on people. And it's not for people who are, don't want to do the work. Honestly, none of this work is really for people who are unwilling to be uncomfortable. If, you're, if you want transformation, you have to be able to sit in that growing edge. And that growing edge is, it can feel excruciating at times. And it's so important for us to be able to peel away and be raw again. It's almost like we peel the Band-Aid away so that we can heal instead of just keep putting the Band-Aid on. So that's a little bit of who it's for and who it isn't. Yeah. And most people don't want to be uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. We are in our comfort zone, but this type of work involves 
discomfort. And I find that human nature is to avoid the discomfort, is to avoid the unpleasant, is to avoid the internalized feelings of shame, blame, and guilt that white-bodied people may be experiencing with all of this um, new history, not new history, but all of this history coming to light and learning more about Black history, Indigenous history, uh, the history of whiteness and all of this. So this is this is great stuff, Kasum. You know, last week, my guest and I spoke about the process of inclusion, starting with separation. Uh, the white people need to do the work separately before coming together with the oppressed communities. So when we come back from break, because we're going to take a little break right now, I'd love to hear your thoughts on this, uh, your thoughts on um, what she was saying about separation before inclusion and really creating a space for white-bodied people to feel safe being vulnerable outside of being in the same container with the oppressed communities. And I want to learn more about your methodology of dissecting whiteness. So everyone, we're going to take a short break. So you want to, you want to stay with us so that we can learn more about Kasum's methodology and her thoughts on separation before inclusion. So we'll be right back. Stay with us. What's stopping you from having more money, time, energy, and fun? Learn how to break through where you stop so that you can have greater success, better health, and happier relationships. Take this free quiz to identify what's stopping your success and learn exactly what you can do about it www.evamedelec.com slash quiz Voice America programs are now available on your favorite connected device including Amazon, Alexa, and Google Home. Through streams with Apple Podcasts, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio, listening to your favorite show is as easy as saying the show name followed by the word podcast. Hey, Alexa, play Finding Your Frequency podcast. If that doesn't work, try adding on TuneIn or on iHeartRadio or on Apple Podcasts. Having higher levels of energy is something you choose and condition, not something you have. Exhaustion has been a challenge for over two years now. This is the year you can choose to change. Here are five things you can start doing today to reverse the burnout, stress, and overwhelm that is keeping you from living a life full of good health and happy relationships. www.evamedelec.com slash reverse burnout. This is the Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. You are listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with host Eva Medelec. Have a question for Eva or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5795. That's 866-472-5795. Now back to the show. Here again is Eva Medelec. Welcome back, everyone. I'm here with Kasum Krimmel, and we are talking about dissecting whiteness, restorative justice, 
and just learning more about what that actually means. So Kasum, last week, I had a guest that shared her thoughts. Uh, She does a lot of work in diversity and inclusion in the corporate space. And she shared her thoughts about doing the work of inclusion, but separately, you know, white-bodied people in their own safe space, Mm -hmm. oppressed communities in their own safe space before coming together to work together. I'd love to hear your thoughts about that. Yeah, that's a great question. I, I've been doing this type of work for a while and I often get this question and I often get discomfort from a lot of different people, not just white people. Um, I get this discomfort from, well, why are we going back to having white people separated? And, and I, I like to bring the analogy that if you had a kindergartner, you wouldn't put them in the same class as a freshman in college. You just, the information is going to be different. There are different levels. And if you think about white body in the way that privilege creates blinders and the ability to see the levels and complexities of how racism shows up, that we grow up not even understanding first grade, second grade of racism and, and how, it, how it is impacting the world. And so when you bring a group of white body people and a group of multiracial um, folks together, Oftentimes it feels like a catch up to white body people who are still trying to understand some basic concepts and understanding that people of color, and I don't like to use that language, I don't like that terminology, but it's the best (laughs) that I have in regards to understanding um, non-white body people. There's just a different level. And I don't even think when people have people of color affinity groups, that even is helpful either, because there's so much diversity in that as well. So what I believe is that the, the acculturation of whiteness in this country creates this sense of white people as norm and everyone else as other. And so, and if you look at there's statistics that show something like 80%, and I'll have the numbers in front of me, 80, 70 to 80% of white body people in this country don't even have a single person of color in their life, like as a close person where you'd reach out to. So the wow. level of- That's yeah. staggering. That's a high statistic. Yeah, it was, yeah. Um, there was a, again, I should bring the statistics, I'll add them to give them to you later. But so if you think about that, and you think about these, uh, majority of white people grow up in white environments, so white um, towns, neighborhoods, churches, um, grocery stores, restaurants, all that. And that has, that was very specifically created by housing policies, the structural racism that we live in. So we're not going to get into that because that's not the, the purpose, but it has been created to kind of like a buffer white people, even in white body people who grow up in cities or urban environments, oftentimes are still buffered in a way of not relating. And so the relationship to personal stories, to understanding how it impacts people added on to this sort of identity of, oh, we're the norm and everyone else is different, creates a a sense in white people to not look at ourselves and say, oh, we have behavior. We have cultural norms and practices that we do that we don't even see them as white things that people do. But other people who are not white can see it like, oh, yeah, that's some (laughs) <laughs> some white people stuff that you do. Like I hear that I'm a store and I didn't want to use curse words on the show. But like people will say that. And particularly for me, I'm in, I'm in a lot of very 
um, close relationship with a lot of people of color. So they'll sell me stuff all the time. Like, oh, there's your people doing that again. (laughs) And it's behavior that I think has been learned over time. And that work is very personalized. And so I really believe that that to have affinity space, to have space for white body people to work on the issues that they need to work on that are not the same thing that Eva, you would work on, right? And people from your community would need to work on. Everyone has their own part of this to unlearn because we've been living in this system and breathing the the oxygen, the air of, of this idea of white supremacy. And so we all have layers to peel off. I just think that there's some specifics that white people need to do before they actually then get into those conversations across race. Yeah, we are, we are all dealing with different things to work on. Yeah. And putting us in the same space initially before we, you know, we've got to crawl before we walk, if you will, or yeah. walk before we run kind of thing. And so what's specific to what white people have to work on is different from what other minoritized communities and people need to work on. And so it's almost kind of a competing interest, if you will, Mm -hmm. to put everybody to do that work in the same container when we're all working on different things. Mm -hmm. And, you know, and I I loved your analogy. I, I, I looked at it as an art class. I'm just learning to draw and you're going to put me with a master, you know, with more advanced students or students who are working on one medium and I'm working on this medium. And so we've got, before we come together and create this great art, we need to learn the different mediums that we want to work on first. So mm-hmm. that makes a lot of sense. And it was something I had never specifically thought of until I heard other white bodied people who are in this work, mm-hmm. do this work. What I'm curious about is you are deep in the work, like knee deep. We, we've talked before, you know, scheduling for you to be on the show. What inspired you to start doing this type of work of dissecting whiteness, restorative justice, based on your education and experience from before? Yeah, I think it's been layered. There's so many, there's different things that show up. I think originally I've always been since I was young, somebody who kind of fought for the, for the underdog, I guess in, in life, I'm a very sensitive person. I, I grew up um, very working class around a lot of people with money. And I always felt um, bullied or kind of like pushed down looked at at wrong. So I always felt like on the outside. So I had a relationship with feeling the outside of, um, and then got involved in different social justice work in college. And it wasn't really until I took this, the first time I was in a, in an affinity space with white body people. So there was a organization and a workshop called the white supremacy, the challenging white supremacy workshops that I joined in 2001 with Sharon Martinez as the leader and the founder of it. And that to me was the first time that so much of my historical understanding of this country just got blown out of the water. And things that I just didn't know, it was like taking the red pill in the matrix, like all of a sudden nothing looks the same. Everything was through this eyes of like, of the, the racial oppression that's been happening. And 
I just, I got angry at my own, no one telling me, <laughs> like no one telling me mm. really what was going on. And I think from that point on, I just kept going in and peeling off layer upon layer. I started connecting it to um, my relationship with young people. I started working with young teenagers at the time. And oftentimes in the work I was doing, I was working with, with youth of color as a white body person, it didn't make sense. And so me and some other folks came together and started a, a volunteer organization to work with white youth at the time. And, and I think like for me, restorative justice, just to kind of correlate them together, inspired, it, it inspires me because it's really trying to transform um, the school to prison pipeline, young people getting funneled, young people of color, black and brown specifically, getting funneled into a system because of white people's fear of, well, there's a lot of reasons. I don't, I'm not trying to put it all into one thing. It's so layered. And it, I, I believe in humanity. I believe in our ability to, to make change. Um, I've seen it. I've seen people make transformational change. And so I think I get inspired by that. More recently, I think I'm inspired by a deepening love that I have for white people. And that didn't used to be the case. I think for a long time, and this is true for a lot of um, sort of white folks who do a lot of anti-racist work. I think early on, there's this sort of deflection energy of, oh, I'm a better white person and I don't want to be associated with other white people because it makes me more whiter. And there's a lot of shame that's involved in this, this identity of whiteness. And I think more and more as I fall deeper in love with myself, I find that I'm falling deeper in love with my people and acknowledging and recognizing like we get to be better. And when we get to be better, we get to have, I can have more pride in us and more joy. And there's, there's something to happen to the way that this system of white supremacy has impacted white bodies is to shut down and to create more containment, more, more control, more tightness and we're not living I, our fullness i love i love that you brought that up and i i really honor and respect you for the love that is growing for other white-bodied people out of the work that you do out of the education that you're you're um experiencing out of the history that you're learning i had the same thing happen mm with black people because of societal constructs. Um, you know, I am raised in the same education system of the United States that white bodied people are raised in. And it universally sees black and brown and other minorities as less than and, and, and white being the norm that everything is measured off of. And, you know, I grew up with, you know, feelings of not only myself feeling inferior, but also seeing other Black people, other Brown people as being inferior as well, and having a certain level of judgment, you know, with uh, the crimes and the, the, the less than feeling and doing the work that I'm doing now, that is kind of an arm of what I do with my high performance work. I've learn to love who I am mm -hmm. so much deeper. And I've learned to love um, other black and brown men, especially because I have it, it especially hard 
you know, being looked at as a threat or as scary all the time, more so than women. Women get it too, but they they feel it, the men feel it 10 times, 20 times, a million times worse than we do. And I have such a level of love and appreciation for the experience of the black male. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also experienced a little guilt for it coming on so late in my life. Mm-hmm. You know, so, you know, we all have something we're experiencing with this, this awakening, you know, the George Floyd's murder, the awakening that it caused throughout the world, if you will. And, you know, it was really beautiful to hear you say that, you know, instead of feeling shame or blame or guilt or disdain around white bodied people, you developed a deeper love Mm -hmm. so that we can be of higher service is what I'm hearing in that. Yeah. And it yeah. starts with love. Yeah. But I think it also it starts to, it's with love and an understanding of how past influences this mm-hmm. moment. And when compassion, speaking, if you will, too. Yeah. That level of compassion for, you know, we are, this is the circumstances. Yeah. Now that we have a heightened awareness, we can make different choices. Yeah. Yeah. It reminded me of there was a young woman who was in my restorative justice class. So I taught at Oakland Tech High School for many years. Well, I wasn't a teacher. I ran the restorative justice program, a mediation program, but I had one class of students and young Black woman who was raised um, in Oakland had definitely a lot of different traumas in her life. And her, we talk a lot about the prison system and the school to prison pipeline. And we talk about um, what people go through and what creates behavior. And then what is the system not doing for people to actually um, shift and change? And so we talk about a lot of things and it was so impactful at the end of this one section, she came up to me and she was the, one of the quietest girls in the class. She rarely talked and she was like, Ms. Kasum, she was in tears. She's like, my father's in prison and he's been in prison for a long time. And I used to hate him and really think like he did everything. Why would he do this? He's a criminal. He did all this stuff. But what I've realized is now there's been systematic things to push him into this, this system, things that he couldn't control, that he had no ability to stop. She's like, and it's making me sad that I hated him for so long. And, and that to me is, it touches me because it gives us, we don't live in a vacuum. We live, our bodies experience things. We are, our systems impact how we go about stuff and why certain things are going on. And when we don't have the context, we start judging. We start thinking, oh, you do this because you're just a bad person or you do this or, or all these different things. And we start having this judgment. And, and I think when you asked me what motivated me, when I first, when I finally started learning the history that I didn't know, that's what was like, oh my God, I could no longer go back. And it does, it opens a place of compassion. It opens a place of deeper understanding. Um, And I will just add, and this is like a quick plug, because if people have not read Resma Menachem's book, My Grandmother's Hands, it is a deep dive into how history lives in our body and how we engage. It specifically focuses on white body people, on on African-Americans and on police bodies as three different groupings of people. It's really powerful. I know many people that are listening probably have read it. And if you haven't, it's. It's on my list. It's definitely on my list. So who needs to initiate 
this type of work, you know, I know you do a lot of work in, you know, for companies, organizations, educational systems, where does the desire to have this work done? Where does that come from? Who needs to initiate that? I think it usually comes from desperation. I think oftentimes <laughs> I get called on people are like, I don't know what to do. They're at their breaking point. They feel like they've tried everything. And then, or sometimes for specifically dissecting whiteness work, I will get called when, when a leader or somebody in their organization has been called out publicly, they did something mm-hmm. wrong. And then the community is coming to get them. You know, I did some work at, I'm not going to name the place, but because um, this one leader, this white male leader kept messing up and they're like, we need you to come and help. So it can come from. It's anybody. usually reactive. It sounds like. <laughs> so often. So often. Yeah. <laughs> not, not so much proactive. Wow. Yeah. Well, this is, this has been really great to, to listen to you share your stories and your awarenesses and, and education and compassion around this work. Um, before we go to break, there's something I do want to touch on and go into deeper after the break. There's been a huge political push in this country for keeping discussions of race and racism out of the schools and the education system. And I know you do a lot of work in schools and education and with young people. When we come back from break, I want to talk more about the work that you do in schools in their diversity and inclusion leadership initiatives and how you are able to do that. Like, I know you're in Oakland, California. I know that, you know, it's one of the more, um, if you will, liberal political environments to do this work in, but I want to hear more about what's what your thoughts on and what's going on in the schools and how we can still teach our young people this vital part of history. So everyone stay with us. We're going to hear more about what's happening politically in the education system and um, what Kasum has to say about that. So we'll be right back. Stay with us, guys. Having higher levels of energy is something you choose and condition, not something you have. Exhaustion has been a challenge for over two years now. This is the year you can choose to change. Here are five things you can start doing today to reverse the burnout, stress, and overwhelm that is keeping you from living a life full of good health and happy relationships. www.evamedelec.com slash reverse burnout. If you're an influencer, you don't follow the trends, you set them. Voice America influencers are involved in creating change in personal and professional lives, collaborating and driving value to make our lives better. We have world-renowned thought leaders, speakers, authors, entrepreneurs, artists, and some of the most influential voices today. Listen in today to what they have to say. Engage in the conversation. The Voice America Influencers Channel. Be inspired. Answer the call. What's stopping you from having more money, time, energy, and fun? Learn how to break through where you stop so that you can have greater success, better health, and happier relationships. Take this free quiz to identify what's stopping your success and learn exactly what you can do about it. www.evamedelec.com slash quiz. 
We don't follow. We lead. Join us. The Voice America Influencers Channel. You are listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with host Eva Medelec. Have a question for Eva or her guests? Join us on the show at 866-472-5795. That's 866-472-5795. Now back to the show. Here again is Eva Medelec. Okay, guys, we are back with Kasum Krimmel. And Kasum does a lot of work with young people, teenagers specifically, and some work in our schools and education system. Now, we know what's going on with our American politics right now, um, and it has been for a while with the discussion of critical race theory or even teaching real history to our kids in school. And, you know, and the concern from what I've heard, and I may be missing some things, is we don't want our white children to feel bad about themselves and, you know, or whatever excuses they come up with. What are you finding? What are you experiencing in the work that you're doing in schools? Yeah. Uh, there's just a part of me that just wants to be like, wow, it's so, it's so interesting to me that people are so afraid of being uncomfortable uh, about talking about real history in, at, the, at the expense of people dying and people actually losing um, so much. It, it just, it feels so ridiculous. And I will say that the person that first started this debate against critical race theory, that, that was exactly their, their reasoning behind. They didn't want white people to feel uncomfortable. And I just have to say this because I think it's so important. Shame is a natural reaction to something that is not okay. Shame is a natural reaction that we all experience when things are not in alignment with our values and what we hold. And so for white people to learn the actual, the, the full history of this country, it's going to obviously bring up shame. It's going to bring up discomfort because it is a natural action from our bodies to say, oh, this is not okay. Our history is not okay, but hiding it and pushing it down is just going to cause more problems. Um, I, I, I like it, this quote and I'm just going to interrupt you real quick, but yeah. yeah, my apologies, but racism flourishes in denial. Yes. You know, it's, it's, it's fertilizer for racism. Yes. yes. Mm-hmm. And shame flourishes without empathy, you know, as mm-hmm. Brene Brown will bring us into in her studies and her work. Yeah. I was and thinking of we, her when you talked about shame for sure. Yeah. yeah. When we offer empathy and understanding, then shame can't live. Um, so, yeah, so I will, what I would say, and I think predominantly the work that I've done with schools and with young people has been in very multiracial environments. And what I know from students and young people of color, young people of African descent, of indigenous descent, of descent from countries that are not European, when you don't learn about your history outside of like these minute moments of oppression, you start internalizing it as if there's something wrong with you. And then white body people internalize it as, oh, I'm all powerful, when that's actually not the full story. And there is a need, everybody has a need to be seen. Again, it goes back to a belonging. Like we all, who, the only people here that, can, that can't claim not being from, that or not being from here are indigenous folks. You know, there's people that were forced to come and a lot of people who chose to come 
um, have come from being forced out of their places. But this is a country of many folks outside of this, this land as their indigenous land. And we all belong. There's, I mean, inherently, I think we all belong to land in general, and we want to feel connected to that. And so young people, I think, particularly when I think about white-bodied young people, like it's a disservice for them not to understand the history of, of all types of people in this country. It is a disservice because it's still, it keeps this idea of whiteness as norm. And it is a delusional identity that actually keeps us dumb. And I, I don't want to, I know that people are probably like, what? I, I think that we become smarter when we know more. We become more intelligent, more intellectually sound when we can understand layers of things and not feel like it has to be one way or the other way. Nuance is something that helps us grow our mental capacity. Complexity is important. There is complexity in all of life. There's always multiple sides to every story. And when we try to to control the storytelling and control it through one narrative, we're doing a disservice. And I would actually say that Americans, honestly, if you talk to people from other countries, our, our education is poor. The lack of information that we learn about other places is so, it, it really deadens our, our capacity for intellectual thinking, our capacity for nuance, for complexity. And so the, I want to ask you about that a little bit before you yeah. move on. Mm-hmm. Why do you think that is? Why is our education system intent on keeping us dumb? I think it's part of control. I, I never read the book, um, The Creature from Je- Jekyll Island, but I heard about it and I've heard some things of it. And from what I know, and you know, whoever needs to correct me can correct me, but it it started with the upper echelon of, of white privilege, of white male patriarchy, if you will, who created the, um, was it the Federal Reserve? And our education system was they set up our education system to keep us as workers mm-hmm. and to limit our knowledge. Mm-hmm. So our education system, for what I know, and I will research this more, so I apologize if my facts are not completely right, but what I know the the broad view of it was that those powerful men who had nothing to do with the federal government, but those powerful men created the system to keep workers dumb and keep workers poor and at a certain level. And that has really grown into the, um, the gist, if you will, of our education system in America, because there's no financial, there's no true financial education in built into our basic education. And I mean, you know, first, you know, K through 12, it really is a limit to keep us just smart enough to learn a trade or a skill and work, but Mm -hmm. really dumb enough not to know the real story behind power. Yeah. And brilliance, the story Mm -hmm. behind black brilliance, the story Mm -hmm. behind the amount of revolutionaries who stood up against this, this system of slavery. Like if, if people knew that there, there was something before the United States slavery system, there was culture, there was, there was, there was brilliance and there still is like there's brilliance now. And I think 
this idea of controlling the narrative allows for the delusion to keep being told, this delusion of manifest destiny, this delusion of white supremacy, these stories that these white elite told way back in the day. And it's almost like, to me, I, I think about the metaphor of when someone tells a lie and then they're so caught in the lie that they don't know how to go back to the beginning. It's almost like the ability to acknowledge, oh, that lie was told so long ago is so extreme that it's just, well, we have to keep it going. And so this, this stopping of critical race theory in classes and schools is this fear that the lie is going to get out. And the original basis of even creating race was it was in order to keep people from knowing their power. I mean, it was back in the 1600s when black, white, indigenous people came together to overturn the, the, the people in power, the white males who had a lot of money and a lot of um, privilege, and they wanted to keep power. And so they're like, well, how do we break this up? Oh, we're going to tell these group of people that you, you might have it bad, but you look like us and you have a little bit of something. But these folks over here are less than human. They're not even close to you. And so you're going to keep this system going because you are now going to get a gun. You're going to get a little bit of tobacco in order to catch people who are running away from the system. So it privileged white body people, poor white people, who actually would have more of a relationship with, um, with Africans, with indigenous people at that time. So yeah, again, it's always coming back to like, how do you control the narrative to keep the power in one group of people? And um, what I see is that when people know their true history, the complexity, the layers of it, there's empowerment. There's like, oh, I'm not just this one caricature of, of people. The amount of young Black students who grow up in a public education system who don't even understand that there was history before slavery, that mm-hmm. there was brilliance yeah. throughout slavery, that there was ingeniousness, that there was creators and revolutionaries and people throughout time. It's, it just baffles me when I see young people like get a chance to understand their history and this complexity and this deep pride. Yes, because we don't, we're not learning this. And when we find this, you know, we're told our whole lives how, you know, through subliminal messages, overt, covert, however you want to say it, we're, mm-hmm. it's ingrained in us. I mean, you remember the doll test, right? I mean, from a young age, those kids were like four or five and six years old. If you don't know the doll test, anyone who's listening, please Google it. And it really shows how um, black and brown children had a choice between a black doll and a white doll. And they always picked the white doll as being good and the black doll as being bad or ugly or terrible. So, you know, that's that's really the tiny, tiny cliff notes version of it. But it's really powerful to see these young young children think of themselves as bad or ugly because of the color of their skin. Mm-hmm. And so, Kasum, with the work that you're doing in schools, what challenge what is challenging you and frustrating you in the work that you're doing now? <laughs> Um, is that the million dollar question? (laughs) Yeah, I think it challenges me most. There's a lot of things that challenge me and a lot of things that inspire me. But I think the thing that challenges me is people's inability to think outside the box or Mm. discomfort in thinking outside the box. We are at a time when 
the world outside has said, oh, we actually need to be creative and think about different ways to do it. And even during the pandemic, like schools went online with the teachers. I just want to shout out to teachers who had to literally transform so hugely in the face of this world. Um, now it's this comfort of going back to normal, like, oh, let's just go back. When we knew anyone in education who has a social justice minded system could start, could say that it wasn't actually the best for a lot of students, but yet we get so comfortable going back. And so I think that for schools, but I think leaders, white leaders that I work with, the most challenging thing for me is, is there, <laughs> is oftentimes their discomfort of being wrong and having to face in just again, I guess face into discomfort. Wow. But people, there's like this way that, that people of color will kind of push like, Oh, you have to go hard and, and really tell them what they're doing and push because they need to change. And then from like, I think more white folks are like, Oh, but be soft, be gentle. Don't do too much because then they're going to freak out. And I feel like I feel the pressure on both sides when I'm working with leaders and there's somewhere in between that we need this, that I know that for me, there's this, there's this sweet spot of, of holding people in where they're at without pushing so hard. But, but if you don't push hard, then there's not change. There's happens. not growth. There's not change. There's no learning. Yeah. You know, I learned a lot today about, um, you know, meeting people where they're at can tend to mean going down into the ditch with them. And it's harder to climb up out of the ditch. You've got to stay on your high spot and really lift people up and out of the ditch and help them climb out of it and give them a hand, a leg, a push to get to that higher uh, level. But they've got to have the desire. They've got to want to get it right more than they want to be right. <laughs> and that's really what I find a lot of the frustration comes in. We're so intent on being right and, you know, and, and losing that power of authority and superiority that, you know, we don't actually get it right. So how can, two seconds, how can folks get in touch with you? Um, you can find me on my website. That's probably the easiest, www.dissectingwhiteness.com. Dissectingwhiteness.com. Yes. Got it, got it. Yes. Kasim, thank you so much for sharing the important work that you do. It's truly inspirational to find white-bodied people committed to really being in the trenches and, and doing this, this hard, challenging, tough work. And I want to thank our listeners for choosing to listen to the show today. I really realize what an honor and a privilege it is for me to be the recipient of your time for this hour. And I want to invite you back to join us next week when my guest Val Jones and I will be discussing her selfish experiment of 2020. Now, that should be interesting. And as usual, I would love to leave you with a quote from Michael Altshuler. And he says, the bad news is time flies. The good news is you're the pilot. So thank you for listening to us today. And until next time, bye for now. Thanks for listening to What's Important Now, making time for what matters most with Eva Medelec. We hope we've been able to inspire you with today's show to take control of your own life and focus on the win. What's important now? Until we talk again, have a beautiful week. 